This is Fresh Air. I'm David Bean Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey, in for Terry Gross. Our guest today, Oscar Isaac, has been nominated for an Emmy this year for his performance in the HBO limited series Scenes from a Marriage, in which he starred opposite Jessica Chastain. Here, in an early scene as a married couple visiting a marriage counselor, are Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain. The therapist has just asked them to briefly describe themselves. Okay, uh, I'm a man. I'm Jewish. That's weird, right? That's so weird. That's strange. I, when I went blank, that's the first thing that came into my head. Great. Yes, that's exactly yes. the idea. Right, okay. Um, I'm uh, a father to Ava, mm-hmm. who's four years old, as you know. Um, I'm an academic. I... I should have said that first, actually. It's mm-hmm. a big part of my self-definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I teach in the philosophy department at Tufts. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? I'm uh, 41. I'm a Democrat. Yeah. I'm an asthmatic. Whoa. You feel uh, your asthma defines you? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, if you go through <laughs> your whole life threatened with the possibility of suffocating, then yeah, you know, becomes part of your self-definition. Oscar Isaac also stars in the Paul Schrader film The Card Counter, which is still available for streaming on Amazon Prime Video. And he was one of the stars of the 2021 film Dune, a new adaptation of the Frank Herbert science fiction novel. Isaac had his breakthrough role in the Coen Brothers' independent film Inside Lewin Davis, but he's also been in blockbusters like the Star Wars sequel trilogy and the Marvel Comics movie X-Men Apocalypse, and most recently starred in the Disney Plus Marvel miniseries Moon Knight. When Terry Gross spoke to Oscar Isaac last year, they started with a scene from The Card Counter. It was written and directed by Paul Schrader and has many echoes of Taxi Driver, which Schrader also wrote. Oscar Isaac's character, who goes by the name William Tell, is a man who holds everything inside, but some kind of explosion seems inevitable. He's a card counter who goes from casino to casino, almost always winning, but keeping his bets modest so he can remain unnoticed. In this opening voiceover scene, he's writing in his journal from prison. He says that as a young man, he was terrified of confined spaces. So when he was sentenced to 10 years in prison, he was surprised to find how well he adjusted. He goes on to explain why. I like the routine. I like the regimen. Same activities, same time, every day. The same toothbrush, the same clothes, same toilet, same stale sweat, stale smoke, stale bodies, stale cooking, stale farts. Same conversations. The faces change, but not much. No choice. I found that I liked reading books. I'd never read a book before. Not all the way through. I found a life for myself that had been beyond my imagination. I was in prison, I learned to count cards. That's Oscar Isaac reading from the character's journal in The Card Counter. Oscar Isaac, welcome to Fresh Air. Such a pleasure to have you on our show. So happy to be here with you. I love this movie so much, and it's part of uh, director and screenwriter Paul Schrader's series of movies about a man alone in his room or 
God's Lonely Man, which is a line from Taxi Driver from his journal. And, and you know, Paul Schrader has described these films, which include Taxi Driver, Light Sleeper, First Reformed, as a man alone in a room wearing a mask, and the mask is his occupation. I also think of these characters as being dead inside, like something they've experienced has caused them to basically be, you know, yeah, to be dead inside. And typically they find something that's on the verge of bringing them closer to being alive again, but that thing doesn't last long. Well, it was interesting because I wouldn't think of them as dead inside. I would think that the mask is kind of a deadening, you know, the, the, the card counting mask, this kind of uh, self-imposed purgatory that he's put himself in, uh, where he just basically is running out the clock on his existence, uh, playing low stakes, blackjack and poker, just enough to get by. Uh, and that kind of uh, is the wall that he's built around himself. But inside, um, what was important for me was to feel like there's this furnace that's brewing, this kind of volcanic thing that's in there that he's desperately trying to to keep down um, that is a bunch of rage and self-hatred and, and um, you know, rage at the people that have put him there. and um, Guilt. Guilt. And, and really, the biggest thing is trauma. And that's one of the first books that uh, Paul uh, sent over to me, which is The Body Keeps the Score, the, the great book on, uh, on trauma. The author, I can't remember his name at the moment, um, but uh, incredible book. And he's got all this trauma that's stored in there. Um, shockingly enough, trauma that, you know, often we think of trauma as there was a, you know, you're the victim of somebody perpetrating some abuse on you. But he's been traumatized by the abuse that he was told to perpetrate on others. Uh, and so that's part of this this just massive burden that he holds, where even after spending, you know, eight to ten years at Leavenworth, he gets out and feels that uh, that wasn't enough. Wasn't enough punishment? No. And it, can we say th- that the trauma is as a result of having served in the Iraq war and things he had to do or was told to do during that war? Yes, he was asked to do very horrible things, to torture people. And he did it uh, because he thought it was the right thing to do. And I think the biggest trauma of all is that he was good at it and he had it in him. You know, you mentioned purgatory, that this character is living in a purgatory. Um, Paul Schrader, who wrote and directed the film, was brought up in a very strict Calvinist family where, I mean, there was no no dancing, no singing, no movies allowed. You grew up in an evangelical family. And I'm wondering if the idea of hell and the devil and eternal suffering was very real to you when you were growing up. What we grew up with, and it was funny because I was just talking the other day with my sister about this, is we grew up with a very, very real sense of the impending doom of the apocalypse. We had uh, pictures, paintings. Um, often my father would uh, be preparing for it, you know, by storing up supplies. Um, and so that, it's funny because she's a, she went into, you know, she's a scientist. She's a climate scientist. And so it's funny that her profession ends up being about the end of the world in some ways. But um, uh, yeah, we, we grew up with that that sense that it was around the corner at any moment, and uh, will you be left behind? Oh, so so 
It was the left behind thing. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to be left behind in the in the years of tribulation with the mark of the beast and the plagues. You know, the, yeah, all the plagues that yeah. are coming and all that. No, yeah, yeah, that was a, a real sense. It was less about if you if you've done right or wrong. It's like how much do you really believe in Jesus? You know, do you really believe? Are you just saying that you do? Um, so it's that that kind of thing uh, was definitely in there, and 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 with that that feeling that anxiety. Um, anxiety that do I do I not do I believe do I believe enough? Uh, maybe I'm lying to myself. Maybe I'm going to be left behind. Is it coming? What's going to What's it going to be like when we hear the trumpets? You know, and the, the sky breaks open. Wow, that's a lot to deal with as a child. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's like it's trauma. the worst horror movie, but except it's it's real in your mind. Yeah. What's What's funny though too is unlike you know. Um, Maybe uh, uh, Paul's upbringing, uh, Paul Schrader's upbringing. Ours was a little less, um, how, how can I put this, a little less principled, <laughs> meaning um, sometimes it was really important and then sometimes it was less so. It was a bit more of an emotional thing. So sometimes suddenly there was no TV in the house because TV was not right. And then a few weeks later or a month later, the TV would be back. Um, you know, suddenly there'd be a chunk of time where music, you know, any non-praise music was not allowed in the house. And then other times we're listening to the Beatles and, you know, Cat Stevens and all that. So, so it, uh, it was a little bit of a unusual landscape because I think it also added to the anxiety, which is like, wait, what do we, what do we believe in now? You know? Oh right, and is the world going to end? Or yeah, like, not this are we all being left yeah, behind now as a family? Yeah. What's going on? Here? Yeah, yeah. There's a little sidebar here. What did your parents store for the apocalypse? Uh, you know, a lot of my, my my dad was in a kind of trying to get canned canned goods and things like that. You know, ammunition. Um, I remember Y2K was a big. You know, it felt like that was like a convergence of the apocalypse and you know. Uh, the technological disaster that was coming. So there's just, um, you know, there's, I, I've found that there's something in like the, the evangelical thing that, that really, there's a, an excitement about the end because it just means you're right, you know? You must have felt like you were living in a little fort with the ammunition and the... Yeah, I mean, that, that it kind of, that, that, that kind of happened more and more afterwards, after my parents divorced and my dad was kind of on his own and... And again, it would sometimes it seemed like it was really important, and sometimes it wasn't. So there was a, a bit of that. But I will say, the, within that, the ideas of grace and forgiveness were like the, those were kind of the silver lining in in all of that, in all of that kind of darkness. Um, that there was grace, and that there is the ability to forgive, and even when. It was difficult to figure out what, as a family, we were believing in and what we were not. Um, those principles um, were helpful. So I want to get back to the card counter. Um, you read from your, well, you have voiceovers of the journal that you're keeping. And it's, of course, obviously very, um, very much an echo of Taxi Driver, where Travis Bickle has his, his diary that he reads from or that he narrates <laughs> through voiceovers in the film. I know that you know the film, The Taxi Driver. So was there anything you wanted to capture or avoid 
from the way that De Niro inhabited Travis Bickle and the way he read the diary. Well, they are, they're, they're, they're such different characters or such a different energy to them. I, I, I didn't concern myself too much with that. You know, in, in some ways I, I embraced the similarities as well. Um, you know, I know Paul talked to me a lot about that, about the voiceovers, not so much in comparison to Travis Bickle, but more about the way he sees it as this main line into the audience. Uh, and that allows you to underplay in some ways even more. Um, because the way that he he likes to feed uh, this, I mean, it's not even information. Because what he does is he he likes it to be quite droll and even dull. And you know his, his example is like you know I went to the supermarket. Uh, I picked up some eggs. I picked up some some milk. Uh, they asked me if I wanted paper or plastic. I asked for plastic. Um, I got a phone call. I found out that I do have cancer. Uh, I then walked down the street. I got a pack of gum. You know it's he just puts these little important bits in the middle, in this bed of, of, you know, very drab details. And that's how he kind of creates this, he creates like this, this rhythm and uh, this uh, momentum, this very slow uh, momentum. And I must have done it maybe 14, 15 times at least, the entire film, voiceovers, different versions, different intonations, uh, different energies. And it's a, it's a real balance between not wanting it to be a narration, uh, not wanting to sell it too much or to over-emote with it, uh, to let it feel like it's reading from a journal, but at the same time not wanting it to be completely robotic. Um, and so that was a, it was a delicate line. Well, those, those, those journals are so important because your character is not an emotional character. He holds everything in. And the insight that we have into him is through the journals. So we are in your head because of the journals. We know what you are thinking. We know your deepest thoughts. What's what's interesting with that is just like the, you know, because with acting, it's like, all right, well, what's my intention, right? Why am I saying what I'm saying? And that's a difficult thing when you're reading a journal because if you're ever reading your journal out loud, it's usually for a very specific reason. Um, but I think what we were trying to find is the moment between the thought and it coming down onto paper. What would that sound like if it was coming out, you know, out of a speaker? Um, so that's what we were trying to find. So as a radio person, I really listen to voices when I watch movies. And um, you have a, a great voice, and it has such good effect in the readings from the journals because your voice ha has such richness and depth, and yet you're reading in this kind of monotone that we described, and it's a really, it's a very powerful combination. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, um, I know my, uh, my voice teachers back at Juilliard will be very happy to hear you say that, <laughs> as much as I frustrated them. Um, I remember Joel and, and Ethan actually talking about that, that that's something in auditions that they, they, they listen for a lot. This is Joel and Ethan Cohen. Cohen, yeah, yeah, talking about, you know, the difficulty because so many modern actors, you know, there's just a, a thinness to, to the voice. Or, and, and I think it's a lot about, you know, not wanting to commit too much. Um, that's why, you know, it just feels like more, more and more time goes on, the more people speak in the back of their throat in order to protect themselves a bit more. Um, 
you say like and and things like that because you know you don't really want to commit there's, there's a little bit more fear of saying what you mean I mean, especially nowadays um and i think sometimes the um the voice can do the same thing you know there's just not as much air there's not as much support because you're just uh, you're trying to protect yourself a bit yeah that's a good insight tell me something great that a voice teacher told you about the spoken voice <laughs> Um, I remember this wasn't great, but this is the opposite of great. But I remember my teacher said, um, you have such a rich, sandy quality to your voice. Was that from listening to all that flamenco growing up? <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. For, for well, anybody who doesn't get that joke, you're of Guatemalan and Cuban descent? Yeah, I, uh, flamenco's from Spain. I didn't, I didn't grow uh, yeah, up listening no, to exactly, flamenco. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I guess you just imagined me like singing Gypsy Kings around the house. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, you know what? I, I did remember one, one thing that just came to me when you asked me what are some good things that the voice teachers said. One of my teachers at Juilliard, uh, Richard Feldman, he did say this. It uh, wasn't the voice teacher, but... I think this is one that I've held on to, which is um, life squeezes us, and these are the noises we make. And uh, I, I just love that. So that that voice, is great. The, the voice is basically life being squeezed out of you at any moment. <laughs> you know, getting back to Taxi Driver and its connection to the card counter, I think you said that Taxi Driver was basically in your DNA. Um, what was the impact of that film on you? When did you first see it, and what does it mean to you? And and may, maybe how has the meaning changed over the years? Right, yeah. Um, I, I saw it, I think I must have been 16 years old. That that was one of the ones that actually made me want to make movies. And I remember we started, me and my friend started making lots of movies, um, kind of emulating uh, Taxi Driver and driving around in, in his car and his little Honda um, in Florida and, and making these short films. It was magic to me. And seeing the arc of this character go through all these different phases and the energy of that thing and the, the kind of subversive punk rock nature of it as well. So much so that by the end he has a mohawk and I was in a punk band in high school. And, and it, just, it just spoke to me on so many levels, feeling like an outsider, um, feeling a lot of rage, I think, against my upbringing and, um, you know, the, the dissolution of my family. And, um, you know, it just, it just connected with that existential despair and then the idea of doing something about it. Um, and, and then just like the, uh, the fantastic nature of, of those violent scenes when he finally comes in and takes out all the bad guys. You know, there was just a... Uh, there, there was a, it was like a punk rock opera. And has the meaning of it changed to you over the years? Yeah, it's sadder now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I see it now and it's, I, I didn't really get the trauma of it before. Um, now seeing somebody so, so horribly wounded, um, you know, that, uh, that scene with Peter Boyle outside of the cafe you know, and he's saying, I, I, you know, it's, it's just, an, it was such a beautiful example of, of um, lack of clarity, you know? It's like everything is just a, 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 an aborted sentence, all the words that he's saying, and then Peter Boyle has like the most inane response, and th there's just something about that that I, I found so beautiful, the inarticulateness of it all. Oscar Isaac speaking to Terry Gross in 2021.
He's up for an Emmy this year for his starring role opposite Jessica Chastain in the HBO remake of Scenes from a Marriage. After a break, we'll hear more of their conversation. And critic-at-large John Powers reviews Uncoupled, the new Netflix comedy starring Neil Patrick Harris. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to our interview with actor Oscar Isaac. He's nominated for an Emmy this year for his starring role in the HBO limited series Scenes from a Marriage opposite Jessica Chastain. He also stars in the Paul Schrader film The Card Counter, which is still streaming on Amazon Prime Video. You probably know him from his appearances in Dune, some X-Men and Star Wars movies, and from the Coen Brothers film Inside Lewin Davis. So in Scenes from a Marriage, your wife is played by Jessica Chastain. It's about a dissolving marriage um, and the after effects of the dissolution. I want to play a clip from Scenes from a Marriage, and this is from the third episode. And so it's been a year since you and your wife have separated. She left you for another man. And since she left, you and your young daughter, Ava, have stopped using the upstairs rooms of the house. And your downstairs office is now a bedroom for you and your daughter, Ava, with a partition dividing their bed spaces. And in this scene, Mira's come over to the house, and she still has feelings for you. And while you've moved on with someone else, you're still in a very vulnerable place. So you both start kissing, and then you stop her, and you say this. I don't think you actually really understand what it was like for me here a year ago. That first moment, I was, I was just on autopilot. I woke Eva up, I got her dressed, I dropped her off at preschool, and I canceled all my classes, and then I came back home. And I thought I was literally losing my mind. And there was a moment where I thought that I didn't even want to stay alive. And there was lots of moments where I was sure I didn't want you to stay alive. Like I really wanted you to die. And then there was a moment when I wanted Ava to die. For that to be my revenge. And then that night she started coughing like crazy. And at one point she threw up from coughing so much and she spiked a fever of 104 and I wasn't sure if I should take it to the emergency room. And so I ended up putting her in a bathtub. And that lasted all night. And I was scared to death. I thought I'd killed her. That's my guest, Oscar Isaac, in a scene from Scenes from a Marriage. Um, you were a father by the time you shot that scene. Yeah, father too. <laughs> yeah. So do you think there was like an emotional depth that you were able to bring to it? Because I think all parents worry about something happening to their child and carry around a certain amount of guilt for something that they did do or should have done or wish they'd done. Or Yeah, of course. Uh, we didn't have to reach so far. You know, I'm I'm not an ex-torturer living a life in a casino. I'm not a, you know, a space king. You know, this this was uh, sometimes, you know, I'd, you know, at the end of the day, I'm filming a scene in this little wooden bed with a five-year-old playing my daughter, reading her a book with this little bunny lamp on. And then I'd 
get in the car, come home just in time to lay down in a little wooden bed with a book with the same exact bunny lamp reading to my four-year-old, you know? <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, there was, it was a very strange process, definitely the, um, the most uncanny thing that I've done as far as just, uh, you know, going from one house with little kids to another, uh, one being the real one. So yeah, I think those things, I didn't need to reach very far to feel emotionally connected to them. There's been so much social media in terms of scenes from a marriage about your looks, about you know you being sexy, about your body, because there's a very brief, uh, you know, full frontal shot. Um, what's your reaction to that? I know you're not that big on social media, but... Um, how do you feel about people commenting on, on your body and in a very positive way? I was surprised that Haggai left that in there because it gives it away that I'm not, <laughs> or that I wasn't raised modern orthodox. <laughs> <laughs> it's maybe it's maybe too brief to really notice. I, that, I hope so, but some people clearly <laughs> caught on. That's so really I funny. Like, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I don't know. I was, I, I wouldn't have done that, but you know, all right. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that was a little more shot would have been better a little more fourth wall breaking <laughs> i guess that's going on there. um yeah i i i uh i don't know you know it's i think it's just part of the part of the thing you know you know i mean it's, you've got so much many more voices that are able to to kind of talk and be heard and it's uh you know i, I wasn't wasn't bothered by it so um, let's talk a little bit about growing up. Your mother was from Guatemala, your father from Cuba. How did they meet? Where did they meet? My father, he, grew, he was from Cuba, but he grew up in Washington, D.C., oh. and he went to Guatemala for medical school, uh, him and his two brothers. So it was down there that he met my mom. So he's a pulmonologist? Yes. Right. So... Um, you and your parents moved to the U.S. when you were five months old. Um, why did you move from Guatemala? Work for my father. We moved, we moved back up uh, in the D.C. area for his residency. So we moved there. We, we, I basically moved every two years my entire life. So, yeah, we moved there. We were there for a year or two. Moved to I was like, Virginia, D.C., Louisiana, and then all around Florida. When you were in Florida, your house was destroyed by Hurricane Andrew. How old were you then, and where were you during the storm? The hurricane, yeah. Yeah, this was 1992. Um, so, yeah, I was uh, you know, 12, 13 years old, and we were inside the house uh, when the house blew down. Luckily, the one wall that we were up against was in the middle of the living room, uh, we were just covered in cushions. The roof blew off. The rooms were got blown away. Um, yeah, it was like a bomb went off. Can you describe a little more what that experience was like? I had my I had a little dog with me, so I was kind of holding him the whole time. And our my cousin and aunt and uncle, my two cousins and aunt and uncle, they had been evacuated from where they are to our house. Um, and the hurricane made a turn at the very last minute. It was like a buzzsaw, Andrew. It was small, but just so powerful. It turned right towards our neighborhood where, where we were. Um, weirdly enough, farther away from the water. We were quite out west. But um, yeah, it, it happened. And I remember it being exciting, 
you know, um, there was, you know, I was sitting in my living room underneath these cushions and I was feeling water come up to my ankles. And, um, and then uh, I remember really wild, weird sounds like the phone ringing and then suddenly flying off the handle and then still ringing in like a really weird alien kind of sound. Um, uh, I, I think the fact that I was holding on to my dog probably helped me not be so scared. And then at a certain point, uh, when things calmed down, I remember hearing somebody breaking through the door and it ended up being my dad who had been at the hospital. At that point, my parents had divorced already and he had been working there and he came to pick us up. And so he got the kids and yeah, I remember coming out into the neighborhood and just, it, it really looked like an atom bomb had gone off. It was just leveled the whole place. Was it traumatizing? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And then the, the, the days that followed, too, um, because I, I remember staying at my grandma's house and there was no lights, And then my, but my sister went off with my mom, and so we got separated, and I didn't hear from them for a while. And then suddenly we were going back to Guatemala altogether, and then we were in Guatemala for a couple months. You, you know, it sounds like this is like an incredible, um, terrible lesson in impermanence the impermanence of everything, but also, like, did it play into the whole end-of-the-world apocalypse scenario that you were brought up to believe in? Yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything about life for me has been a lot of impermanence. You know, that's also the what's funny about the profession that I'm in. You know, you have these really intense months with these people doing this thing where it, it means so much, you know, I remember I was talking to Ethan Hawke where it's like, we're like, yeah, what's wrong with this? You know, oftentimes you're you're in a scene and, and you're like, what what limb can I cut off so I can be 10, 10% better in this scene? And then a year later, you're like, I don't, I don't even care about that movie, you know? But in the moment, it means everything. And and then it and then it goes away. It just like, it dissolves. And, you know, sometimes you keep in touch with some of the people, but more often than not, you don't. And and so it does feel like uh, there's just been this long narrative from the moment I've been born of just the just the temporary nature of things. And what about the end of the world scenario? I mean, having your house uh, blow away while you're inside of it. Um, did that deepen? I don't know where you were in your own sense of belief at that at that time. Yeah, I, th- I think it's sort of moving away from it, really. You know, in some ways, because it's like, you know, yeah, these things happen, but it doesn't, uh, yeah, it doesn't mean it's the end, you know, and it, and it, this isn't God doing this, this is just a hurricane, you know. Oscar Isaac speaking to Terry Gross in 2021. More after a break, this is Fresh Air. So 2017, I want to skip ahead to there, was, was a really life-changing year for you. Your mother died in February you got married in March. Your first child was born in April. Um, during that period, you also played Hamlet. The impact of having death and new life so close together must have been, well, I, d- I don't know. Maybe you, you can say a little bit about what it was like. I've seen that happen so often where somebody in a, where an older member of the family dies and then a new baby is born. You know, talking about impermanence, what was it like for you to have, you know, death and new life so close together? Yeah, yeah, just seeing the um, that little that gateway, you know, being the same the same one, right? You know, it's kind of go back to where where you came from. 
Yeah, it was uh, obviously it was a very traumatic time as well. So still to this day, I feel like I haven't completely processed it. And in the moment, it felt really good to have something like Hamlet to to pour all of that um, grief into and then also hope at the same time. Um, You know, whether that's the healthiest thing, I don't know. You know, it, it, it is a funnel and it's always been where I go to understand things about life and things that are happening to me um but you know it's one thing to grieve as a character and one thing to grieve as an actual um you know person and and uh and i think that that's there's some still quite quite a lot of unresolved stuff there but to have this little baby boy who i named after my mom um you know uh come just month and a half later that was that was really really something and um yeah yeah it's just the yeah it's the biggest the biggest things and and gave a lot of perspective to it all um you know i think since then um i've i've become a much less desperate person what does that <laughs> like mean like i was well, I think I was always desperate to like, I, I got to be great or I, I got to, I got, I need to be seen. I, I need to be, uh, I need to say the right thing. I need to make the right decision. I need, you know, there was just all these, I need to talk to the right person. I need to, you know, make this person like me. I need to make, you know, all, all these kind of desperate feelings that have really uh, finally melted away for the most part. I mean, it still comes up now and then, but but for the most part, I think that's what a lot of that did. It was just reshuffle what I find important. Another thing I can imagine happening is, is it shifting your whole sense of generations because you no longer had a mother, but now you were a father. And so that's, that's a, a huge shift in, in identity and, and, and a sense of where you are in the generations. Yeah, sure. You know, the grief was, uh, you know, the only unconditional love I've ever really felt was from my mom. So like that's that was like God and then God died. And then I it's like I'll never have that again, you know, because it's a possibility I only have the one mom, but I can give that. And that shift, you know, has been a, a really beautiful thing to to move into that, into the giving I read that your mother loved Shakespeare, so when she was sick, you read you read Hamlet to her. I guess you mm-hmm. were preparing for the role at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, can you talk a little bit about passages from Hamlet that have just like special resonance for you because of reading it to your mother and because you were playing the role after she died? Because part of the so much of the story is about grief. He's lost his father. He believes his father was murdered, and he thinks he knows who murdered him. Yeah, there were so many. I mean, I, I remember, I remember doing, uh, oh, what a Rogan peasant slave for her, and she just was like, oh, that's very good, and <laughs> she was just, uh, she was so, so sweet about it. But I think the one that really, um, um, the one that really, I remember. Actually, every night it just would hit me in such a such a really intense way, which was the the you know the if it be now, it is not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. Um, the readiness is all, um, and that 
that was a really strong one because, you know, we were all, in a way, getting ready for the inevitable, which was she was going to pass. She had been given a death sentence. And, um, you know, the idea of the, the, the sparrow falling, and she'd always talked a lot about that, I, you know, that he, he knows when a sparrow falls uh, as, as a, a sign that God cares if he knows even if a sparrow falls. And what, what does he not think of you? How does he not feel of you? Something like that. Um, so that, that always hit me really hard and I, I'd always hear my mom in that. Um, but the whole thing really was, it, it felt like a, a funeral for her every night. You know, I would picture her in the audience when I was preparing and I'd pick the seat that she was going to be in and, you know, a lot of, a lot of focus would go towards that seat every night. Well, well just one more thing, you know, we talked earlier about growing up in an, you know, evangelical, uh, family with a profound belief in the inevitability of the apocalypse happening soon. And you said when you left that faith, it was either, you know, either you believed or you didn't. It was That too was like an on and off switch, and, and you turned it off. Did you ever try turning it back on again, or are you still in the off mode? I'm, I'm trying to turn it back on. I'm, I'm, I'm grasping in the dark for the light switch. Uh, because, yeah, I have found that, you know, living in just a kind of materialistic sense of things, you know, just the material world is all that's real. That that's that feels like a, a dead end as well. And it all it's also quite an egotistical thing to be like everything I see. That's all that's real. I know exactly what you know how everything works, and I, I wouldn't presume to do that. So, so yeah, I think I am. I am in a bit of a, of a search, in a hopeful search for um, to cultivate a bit more of a spiritual life. Well, I wish you well with that. Thank you. Oscar Isaac, it, it's just been wonderful to talk with you. I'm really grateful that you joined us on the show today. I was so happy to speak with you, too. It's been a long time coming for me. I'm really, it's a real honor to talk to you. I think you're just one of the greatest. Oscar Isaac speaking to Terry Gross in 2021. The star of Inside Lewin Davis more recently has appeared in the Star Wars movie franchise and the remake of Dune, and starred in the Disney Plus Marvel Comics series Moon Knight. He's up for an Emmy this year for his starring role in the HBO remake of Scenes from a Marriage. After a break, critic-at-large John Powers reviews Uncoupled, the Netflix comedy premiering today, starring Neil Patrick Harris as a newly single middle-aged gay man in New York City. This is Fresh Air. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Zoom. Half a million businesses connect using Zoom, a single platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video. Zoom enables real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom's secure and reliable platform is easy to manage, use, and customize for large enterprises, small businesses, and individuals alike. Zoom, how the world connects. The new comedy series Uncoupled stars Neil Patrick Harris as a gay New Yorker whose long-term relationship abruptly ends. The series was created by Darren Starr, known for such shows as Melrose Place and Sex and the City. Our critic at large, John Powers, says that Uncoupled, which drops today on Netflix, delivers exactly what you'd expect from a show by Darren Starr. A while back, I became obsessed by the diaries of Witold Gombrowicz, the great Polish writer who viewed the world through eyes that cut like scalpels. 
Human life, he said, is a constant war between maturity and immaturity, a war that immaturity ultimately wins. No matter how old and wise we are, or think we are, we remain at bottom adolescents. If anyone in pop culture seems to confirm this idea, it's Darren Starr, the hit-making TV producer who began his career with teenagers. He created Beverly Hills 90210, then Melrose Place. And in a sense, he never left them behind. Whether it's Sex and the City, Younger, or the fatuous Emily in Paris, Starr creates fizzy, crowd-pleasing series whose characters never seem to act remotely as old as they're supposed to be. This is even true of his bouncily bingeable new Netflix comedy, Uncoupled, which centers on gay men nearing 50. Neil Patrick Harris stars as Michael, a high-end Manhattan real estate agent whose cozy domestic life is shipwrecked when out of the blue he's dumped by his partner of 17 years, Colin. That's Tuck Watkins. Suddenly and unhappily single, this somewhat prim, wisecracking middle-aged man finds himself thrown into today's youth-centric gay culture in which one takes below-the-belt selfies to put on grinder. Of course, like Carrie Bradshaw, Michael doesn't face sex in the city alone. He's got an energetic business partner, Suzanne, vividly played by Tisha Campbell, and two great friends whose sex lives could hardly be more different. Whereas Billy, that's Emerson Brooks, is a cool, narcissistic TV weatherman who plows through younger men, the less buff, more vulnerable Stanley wonderfully played by Brooks Ashmanskis, is a witty gallery owner who trades in romantic futility. This posse helps Michael as he indulges difficult clients, Marsha Gay Harden turns up as a rich, recently abandoned wife, and explores the new romantic possibilities that pop up in seemingly every episode. Here, Michael goes to a club with Stanley and Billy, who's instantly on the phone trolling the room for a conquest. Oh, 20-something else, less than 50 feet away. Very cute. Billy, we are here to support our friends, not abandon him for a hookup. I'm just showing him how easy it is. Oh, he's so into me. I am not interested in getting back in the game, looking at naked selfies on my phone. What are you looking for, dinner and a movie? Come on, you must have fooled around with other guys during your relationship. Not really. I put the mono in monogamy. Or monotony. Up top. If and when I'm ready to have, to put myself out there, oh Jesus, I can't believe I'm even saying this, I, I want it to be a little special. Good luck with that, sweetie. Nowadays, special is when they still want to have sex with you after you show up. I think they're all special, like snowflakes, no two alike. You just got to get them before they melt. Don't wait up, boys. She can torture a metaphor, but she always gets her man-child. <laughs> now... Uncoupled is a bit raunchier than Starr's earlier work. And if seeing Neil Patrick Harris's bare bottom is on your bucket list, I've got good news. Your dream has come true. That said, the show displays all the somewhat passé star hallmarks, from its glamorizing of upscale urban life to its dialogue laced with carefully tailored quips. There's a killer line here about Charlie Rose. No psychological realist, Star likes to dream up characters who are essentially types, then figure out amusing ways of giving their adolescent antics and attitudes a bit of emotional shading. This approach is tailor-made for Harris, who exudes the poised charm of one who always wants us to think that he's just sauntered in from a Fred Astaire movie. If he sometimes comes off a tad smug, that works well here. Michael starts off smug, too. And it's fun to watch Harris go for a somewhat deeper emotional register than usual. 
It's not the deepest I've seen him. He had a lovely, touching turn on HBO Max's terrific series, It's a Sin. But I enjoyed watching his customary savoir-faire lose some of its lamination. Although Uncoupled probably feels unusually personal to Star and Harris, both openly gay men of a certain age, the show is too busy being lively to deal seriously with the loss a man would feel on losing a relationship of 17 years. It's tempting to criticize Uncoupled for being superficial. Melrose Place is Tolstoyan by comparison. Yet to fault the show for its lack of depth is almost to miss the point. You see, Starr's approach is not to cannonball into life's deep end. Instead, he gestures at the hard things you would find there. Aging, loneliness, selfishness, betrayal. Then leads us back to the shallow end of the pool, where we can splash around having fun. John Powers reviewed the new Netflix series, Uncoupled, starring Neil Patrick Harris. On Monday's show... Writer Kirk Wallace Johnson tells the story of a bitter conflict that arose along the Texas coast in the 70s when Vietnam War refugees settled in the area and began trawling for shrimp. White fishermen and the Ku Klux Klan targeted the newcomers, leading to assaults, arsons, a shooting death, and a federal lawsuit aimed at stopping the attacks. Hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shaw. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Tina Callaghan. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brager, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Nyakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. Included.